European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance. Volume 44, Issue 27. Focus Issue, Arrhythmias. By Editor-in-Chief Professor Filippo Crea. Read to you by Morgan Bryan. Addressing the pandemic of atrial fibrillation. Optimization of catheter ablation and new therapeutic targets. This focus issue on arrhythmias contains the state-of-the-art review article entitled Use, Misuse and Pitfalls of the Drug Challenge Test in the Diagnosis of the Brugada Syndrome by Arta Wilder and colleagues from the Amsterdam University Medical Centers in the Netherlands. Brugada Syndrome, or BRS, is a relatively rare arrhythmia disorder that can lead to sudden cardiac death due to ventricular tachycardia stroke fibrillation predominantly in adults. The authors note that the diagnosis of BRS requires the presence of a covered type 1 ST segment elevation in the right precordial leads of the electrocardiogram, or ECG. The dynamic nature of the ECG is well known and, in patients with suspected BRS but non-diagnostic ECG at baseline, a sodium channel blocker test or SCBT, is routinely used to unmask BRS. There is little doubt, however, that in asymptomatic patients, a drug-induced Brugada pattern is associated with a much better prognosis compared with a spontaneous type 1 ECG. The SCBT is also increasingly used to delineate the arrhythmogenic substrate during ablation studies. In the absence of a gold standard for the diagnosis of BRS, sensitivity and specificity of the SCBT remain elusive. By studying patient groups with different underlying diseases, it has become clear that the specificity of the test may not be optimal. This review aims to discuss the pitfalls of the SCBT and provide some directions in whom and when to perform the test. In a viewpoint article entitled Oral Anticoagulation for Atrial Fibrillation in Rheumatic Heart Disease, Scott Daherty and colleagues from the Hospital Authority in Hong Kong discuss the Invictus trial. The global burden of rheumatic heart disease, or RHD, is substantial. Invictus trial is a randomized, open-label, non-inferiority study which compared vitamin K antagonists, or VKAs, with rivaroxaban in atrial fibrillation, or AF, patients with hemodynamically significant RHD. Patients were randomly allocated to rivaroxaban, or a dose-adjusted VKA, target international normalized ratio, or INR, 2 to 3, with at least monthly monitoring. The prevalence of the primary efficacy endpoint and of death was significantly higher in rivaroxaban than in the VKA arm. In their viewpoint, Doherty and colleagues note that it's clear from Invictus that non-VKA oral anticoagulants, or NOACs, should remain contraindicated in all patients with RHD-AF who have hemodynamically significant mitral stenosis i.e. mitral valve area less than or equal to 2 cm squared. However, given the lack of evidence to suggest otherwise, they also believe that it is appropriate to retain NOACs as a potential option for stroke prophylaxis alongside VKAs 
for RHD-AF patients without hemodynamically significant mitral stenosis. Indeed, this may represent the only opportunity to provide safe anticoagulation for high-risk RHD patients from endemic areas with limited or no access to intensive INR control. In a Viewpoint article entitled Pacing or Ablation for Vasovagal Syncope One Size Does Not Fit All Dolga Aksu and colleagues from the Yedipe University Hospital in Istanbul, Turkey indicate that vasovagal syncope, or VVS, is a clinical condition caused by sudden-onset bradycardia, cardio-inhibitory response, and hypertension, vasodepressor response. However, the response is usually mixed, which is highly determined by age. Despite the benign nature of VVS, in some patients, frequent syncopal episodes with prodrome may result in injury and impaired quality of life, despite conservative measures. In this high-risk population, pacemaker implantation and cardioneuroablation are possible forms of treatment. The authors propose an algorithm which may help the clinician to identify the best form of treatment in the individual patient. Catheter ablation is an effective strategy in AF. In a fast-track clinical research article entitled Impact of Early versus Delayed Atrial Fibrillation Catheter Ablation on Atrial Arrhythmia Recurrences. Jonathan Kalman and colleagues from the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia point out that its timing in the course of management remains unclear. The authors sought to determine if an early versus delayed AF ablation strategy is associated with differences in arrhythmia outcomes during 12-month follow-up. A total of 100 patients with symptomatic AF referred to a tertiary centre for management were randomised in a one-to-one -one ratio to either an early ablation strategy within one month of recruitment or a delayed ablation strategy, optimised medical therapy followed by catheter ablation at 12 months post-recruitment. The primary endpoint was atrial arrhythmia-free survival at 12 months. Secondary outcomes included 1. AF burden, 2. AF burden by AF phenotype, and 3. Antiarrhythmic drug usage at 12 months. 89 patients completed the study protocol. Mean age 59 years, 29% women. Pulmonary vein isolation was achieved in 100% of patients. At 12 months, 56% of patients in the early ablation group were free from recurrent arrhythmia compared with 59% in the delayed ablation group. Hazard ratio, or HR 1.12, P equaling 0.7. All secondary outcomes showed no significant difference. Kalman et al. conclude that compared with an early ablation strategy, delaying AF ablation by 12 months for antiarrhythmic drug management does not result in reduced ablation efficacy. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Paulus Kirchhoff and Andreas Metzner from the Universitätsklinikum Hamburg-Ebendorf in Germany. The authors conclude that AF ablation retains its effectiveness in preventing AF after a year of waiting on antiarrhythmic drug therapy. This finding will be a relief to patients and care teams faced with waiting times. 
Conceptually, the findings also underscore that rhythm control therapy, including early rhythm control, is a long-term treatment strategy that requires balanced choices between antiarrhythmic drugs, AF ablation, and other interventions protecting and restoring the integrity of the atria. Atrioesophageal fistula, or AOF, represents a rare but dreadful complication of AF catheter ablation. In another Fast Track Congress article entitled A Worldwide Survey on the Incidence, Management and Prognosis of Esophageal Fistula Formation Following Atriofibrillation Catheter Ablation, the Potter AF Study. Roland Tilts and colleagues from the University Hospital Schleswig-Holstein in Germany point out the data on incidence, management and outcome are sparse. This international multi-centre registry investigates the characteristics of AOF after treatment of AOF by catheter ablation. A total of greater than 553,000 catheter ablation procedures radiofrequency 63%, cryoballoon 36%, other modalities 0.9%, were performed at 214 centres in 35 countries. In 78 centres, 138 patients, i.e. 0.025%, radiofrequency 0.038%, cryoballoon 0.0015%, P being less than 0.0001, were diagnosed with an AOF. Periprocedural data were available for 118 patients. Following catheter ablation, the median time to symptoms and the median time to diagnosis were 18 days and 21 days respectively. The most common initial symptom was fever, 59% of patients. The diagnosis was established by chest computed tomography in 80% of patients. Esophageal surgery was performed in 47%, direct endoscopic treatment in 20%, and conservative treatment in 33% of patients. The overall mortality was 66%. Mortality following surgery, 52%, or endoscopic treatment, 56%, was significantly lower as compared with conservative management, 89% p being less than 0.001. The authors conclude that AOF after catheter ablation of AF is rare and occurs mostly with the use of radiofrequency energy rather than cryoenergy. Mortality without surgical or endoscopic intervention is exceedingly high. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Michael Lim and Jonathan Kalman from the Royal Melbourne Hospital in Australia. They conclude that the authors should be congratulated on this important study establishing the incidence of AOF in a large international cohort of patients following AF ablation. While it has demonstrated that the overall risk is low, further research to identify modifiable risk factors and safer novel technologies combined with efforts to increase awareness among patients and physicians, will be pivotal to further reducing the prevalence and impact of this dreaded complication. The traditional nitroglycerine, or NTG, head-up tilt test, or HUTT, 
is time-consuming and the test duration is a barrier to widespread utilization in clinical practice. In a clinical research article entitled Short Duration Head-Up Tilt Test Potentiated with Sublingual Nitroglycerin in Suspected Vasovagal Syncope, the Fast Italian Protocol. Vincenzo Russo and colleagues from the University Campania Luigi Van Vitelli Monaldi Hospital in Naples, Italy, hypothesized that a short-duration protocol is not inferior to the traditional protocol regarding the positivity rate and has a similar distribution of hemodynamic response. Patients undergoing HUTT were randomized one-to-one to, one to a 10-minute passive phase plus a 10-minute 0.3 mg NTG if the passive phase was negative, the FAST protocol, or a 20-minute passive phase plus 15 minutes 0.3 mg NTG if the passive phase was negative, the traditional protocol. A total of 554 consecutive patients, mean aged 47 years, 48% male, undergoing HUTT for suspected vasovagal syncope, were randomly assigned to the FAST, N equaling 277, or traditional, N equaling 277, protocol. A positive response was defined as the induction of syncope in the presence of hypotension stroke bradycardia and was observed in 167, or 60% of patients with FAST, and in 162, or 58% of patients with the traditional protocol. Rousseau et al. conclude that the diagnostic yield of the FAST HUTT protocol is similar to that of the traditional protocol, and therefore the FAST protocol can be used instead of the traditional protocol. The manuscript is accompanied by an editorial by Arta Fedorowski and colleagues from the Karolinska University Hospital in Stockholm, Sweden. The authors state that the Russo group is to be applauded for this work, which is expected to be widely adopted in Europe. It may also encourage the wider use of the shortened tilt-test protocol in other parts of the world and change the delivery of syncope assessment and care. If this happens, patients will benefit and the pressure on large referral centres might even subside, a worthwhile step forward indeed. The pharmacological armamentarium to reduce the recurrence of AF is wide, but its efficacy remains suboptimal. Thus, new therapeutic targets are welcome. AF is associated with altered cyclic AMP stroke protein kinase A, or PKA, signaling, and an AF-promoting reduction of L-type calcium current. In a translational research article entitled Phosphodiesterase 8 governs cyclic AMP stroke PKA-dependent reduction of L-type calcium current in human atrial fibrillation, a novel arrhythmogenic mechanism. Nefeli Grammatica Pavlidou and colleagues from the University Medical Center Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany note that cyclic nucleotide phosphodiesterases, or PDEs, degrade cyclic AMP and regulate PKA-dependent phosphorylation of key calcium-handling proteins, including the L-type calcium-carrying CAV1.2-alpha-1C subunit. The aim of this study was to assess whether altered function of PDE type 8, or PDE8 isoforms, contributes to the reduction 
of L-type calcium in persistent chronic AF or CAF patients. PDE8A gene and protein levels were higher in paroxysmal AF or PAF versus sinus rhythm or SR patients, whereas PDE8B was upregulated in CAF only. Cytosolic abundance of PDE8A was higher in atrial PAF monocytes, whereas PDE8B tended to be more abundant at the plasma lemma in CAF monocytes. In co-aminoprecipitation, only PDE8B2 showed binding to the CAV 1.2-alpha-1C subunit, which was strongly increased in CAF. Accordingly, CAV 1.2-alpha-1C showed a lower phosphorylation at SER1928 in association with decreased L-type calcium in CAF. Selective PDE8 inhibition increased SER1928 phosphorylation of CAV1.2-alpha-1C, enhanced cyclic AMP at the subsarcolemma, and rescued the lower L-type calcium in CAF, which was accompanied by a prolongation of action potential duration at 50% of repolarization. The authors conclude that both PDE8A and PDE8B are expressed in human heart. Upregulation of PDE8B isoforms in CAF reduces L-type calcium via direct interaction of PDE8B2 with the CAV1.2-alpha-1C subunit. Thus, upregulated PDE8B2 might serve as a novel molecular mechanism of the proarrhythmic reduction of L-type calcium in CAF. The contribution is accompanied by an editorial by Julie Renison and David Van Wagener from the Cleveland Clinic. Renison and Van Wagener conclude that dysregulation of calcium cycling is a critical aspect of atrial arrhythmogenesis. Mechanism-based therapies that improve calcium homeostasis may offer hope for slowing the progression of AF and lowering the risk of stroke and AF-related mortality. They congratulate Pavlidou et al for providing new insights into the mechanisms of AF progression. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will be of interest to its listeners.